0: This is Preble Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. Welcome back to Preble Hall. I'm Abby Mullen, and I'm delighted to be back with you today. Today, I have in the studio Fred Leiner, who's going to talk to us about a topic that is near and dear to my heart, the First Barbary War. So before we jump into Fred's book, The Prisoners of the Bashaw, I'm going to ask Fred, would you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. I'm Fred Leiner. I am a retired lawyer and uh, author and maritime historian.
0: Fantastic. And this is not your first book. Tell us a little bit about your other books.
1: Sure. This is my third book. Uh, My first book was called Millions for Defense, the Subscription Warships of 1798, which dealt with the effort by private Americans to build warships for the Navy, for which they received uh, 6% uh, government certificates, which today we would call bonds. They were called stock then. And then the operational careers of each of those ships. I thought that was a really fascinating topic. Um, My second book was called The End of Barbary Terror, which dealt with the 1815 campaign, uh, mostly by Stephen Decatur, to put an end to um, the practices of the Barbary states. In that case, it was Algiers, of uh, seizing American sailors and uh, holding them for ransom. And um, that was the really the last campaign that the United States had with the uh, Barbary pirates, so-called.
0: So this new book is... Kind of about the first iteration of that fight.
1: Yes, you know, you could almost call it a prequel, if you will, because instead of looking at the end of those campaigns, it it looks at perhaps the most important inflection point of the first Barbary War, which was the grounding of the frigate Philadelphia and the subsequent uh, seizure of all 307 sailors and marines of her crew uh, and what spun off from that. There, essentially, it's a book about the cap- how that came to be and the captivity uh, of those men and how they were ultimately freed.
0: So I want to get to the men, obviously, but before we get to what happens to them as prisoners, let's talk about how they get to be prisoners. So would you tell us a little bit about how the Philadelphia is captured?
1: Okay, well, so uh, the Philadelphia was a 36-gun frigate built in, uh, during the uh, uh, patriotic fervor of the quasi-war against France.
0: And one of a subscription frigate, right? It was one so of the Another tie-in to your previous book. Yes, and um,
1: I, I, I think it's fair to say that the Philadelphia was sent by Commodore Edward Preble as the first ship to reinstitute the blockade of Tripoli, Um, and when I say that, let me give you sort of take two steps back. The Tripolitan War had begun in May 1801 uh, as a result of the Bashaw of Tripoli uh, raising his demands for tribute, which the United States uh, at first neglected to even respond and then decided we were not in that business, we were not going to do it. Uh, so uh, there was a squadron in 1801 that was sent under Commodore Richard Dale, and then a second squadron sent under uh, Commodore Richard Morris in 1802. And uh, although they achieved partial success, uh, their blockade of blockades of Tripoli were intermittent and really didn't put enough pressure on on Tripoli, if you will. So uh, there was a serious effort uh, or a serious th- Thinking in the cabinet uh, to buy peace. Uh, And and Jefferson's cabinet brooded about whether or not they should and how much they should spend. And uh, ironically, the Secretary of the Navy uh, uh, advocated paying more to buy peace than the other members of the cabinet. However, they decided to send out a third squadron in 1803, uh, led by Commodore Preble, Uh, which, of course, it's uh, significant that we're talking today in Preble Hall. Um, And uh, Preble had two frigates, the Constitution, which was not then called Old Ironsides, and the Philadelphia. And the Philadelphia was the first ship sent out to reinstitute the blockade. And at the last day of October, 1803, uh, the Philadelphia ran aground on Calyusa Reef, about three or four miles outside of the port of Tripoli. And uh, Bainbridge made... uh, The captain of the ship was William Bainbridge. He made frantic efforts to try to get her off the rocks. Uh, They were all unsuccessful. And he ultimately decided to surrender the ship late in the afternoon of October 31, uh,
0: 1803. So... In the aftermath of this, of course, everyone has an opinion about whether Bainbridge made the right decision or not. So what do you think? Did he make the right decision to give up the ship or should he have kept fighting?
1: Well, let me just say in the book, I try to be as even handed as I can about that because I think it's a close question and it's very easy to judge people afterwards. Um, but you asked my personal opinion, and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, I, I think that Bainbridge showed a lack of leadership, and frankly, although he was known to be a distinguished seaman, I think he showed uh, a really uh, ignorance and, and uh, almost appalling lack of good seamanship. So let me take that part first. The reason why the Philadelphia ran aground was that she was chasing a Tripolitan Zebeck which managed to escape and get back into the of Tripoli. He, the uh, Philadelphia was a fast ship and was sailing at seven, at seven or eight knots. But once it became clear that the um, chase, the Tripolitan Zebek was going to escape, Bainbridge should not have kept the ship, you know, moving at such a speed. He should have, you know, reduced sail. He could have sent out a boat in uh, one of the ship's boats, in advance with the lead lines to take soundings because he was ignorant of the approaches to Tripoli port, and he didn't have a chart, which is just astounding that he wouldn't, but they didn't have a chart, an accurate chart anyway, of the approaches to Tripoli. So for him to just keep the ship sailing and think that despite how notorious the shoal waters of uh, coastal uh, North Africa can be, that there was no risk. Uh, I I think uh, one has to question his seamanship. Uh, And then, uh, although there's no question he made uh, great efforts to get the ship off the rocks, the the truth is that the uh, Tripolitan gunboats, which had come out of the harbor and started to fire on the Philadelphia, they aimed high, deliberately. Uh, They didn't aim into the hull. They wanted to capture the ship uh, in as intact uh, a way as they could. And so when he did surrender, there was not one man wounded or killed on board the Philadelphia. And from the fragmentary evidence that we have, the crew wanted to fight. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's quite fair to say that their blood was up, but they, they didn't want to give up, and uh, there's a lot that he could have done. Uh, it, it seems clear that uh, they could have held off the Tripolitans at least for a time, at least for the night, and why do I say that? Well, the 307 men on board were obviously well-armed with cutlasses and pikes and pistols, and among the 307, there were 40 Marines, and even though the Marines had not yet established themselves as the renowned fighting force that we know them today, they were trained marksmen. Uh, so it would have been very tough for Tripolitan borders to have uh, gained a foothold on a ship that was resolutely defended. And the point here is not necessarily—well, let me, let me put it in the affirmative Strange things can happen at sea. And what Bainbridge might have done is try to buy time. Because as we know, about 40 hours after the ship went aground and after all the Americans had been seized and held as prisoners, the ship did come off the rocks in an enormous gale of wind. Now, Bainbridge could not have known that. But I think the point is that he had every reason to try to buy time. And and as a captain of a U.S. warship, his duty was to defend the ship to the utmost. And I think that a good case could be made that he did not do that.
0: So then all of these 307 men are captured and brought to Tripoli. What happens to them after that?
1: Well, that's a simple question with a complicated answer. So uh, I'll, I'll approach it this way. First, the officers were treated far differently than the men. The officers were initially housed in the consul house that the American consul had had used, which was uh, airy and large, commodious, and they were fed well, uh, thanks to the interposition of the uh, Danish consul, a man named Nikolai Nissen, made sure that they got uh, fresh provisions every day I'm sure they ate a lot better than they would have eaten on board the Philadelphia uh, being at sea and they had more room to walk uh, in the piazzas of this consul house than they would have had on the quarterdeck of the Philadelphia uh, the men however were treated very differently they were housed in an old originally in an uh, initially in an old warehouse uh, and they had a uh, a pebbly dirt floor to sleep on. They were not giving very good food. They had very little food. It was mostly a sort of barley bread uh, and a little bit of olive oil, occasionally some vegetables, and they were put to sort of slave labor. The officers were treated as gentlemen and did not have to work. The men were carting uh, building materials around, and the so called mechanics among the crew. The Coopers, the uh, sailmaker, uh, uh, were put to work repairing the Bashaw's gunboats in his Navy yard on the Strand. Um, So they had kind of backbreaking labor, um, and, and the officers were treated very differently. Now, that changed a little bit. And uh, I'm not going to anticipate where you might go with your questions, Abby, but that changed for the officers about four months into their stay when they were moved into a dungeon underneath the Bashaw's castle. And that was a very different existence for them than they had had in the consul house.
0: So these men are prisoners of war. But this whole war was fought because of other captives taken by not just Tripoli, but Algiers' Tunis, even Morocco, how does their experience differ from just a normal civilian captive?
1: Well, that's a great question. And um, the scope of slavery in the Maghreb, uh, which is actually beyond the scope of my book, uh, is sort of difficult to answer simply. At different times, at different places, the people captured by the Barbary um, powers uh, were treated very poorly. Now, for instance, there are some early accounts of them uh, in chains. And uh, there's absolutely no truth to the idea that the Americans off the Philadelphia were ever chained. That never happened. Um, And, of course... You go way back, and you have people like uh, Cervantes, the great Spanish novelist, who for five years was a prisoner in Algiers, and he was chained to a uh, oar on a galley uh, as a literally a galley slave, and that had. Those times had long passed by the time the Americans were slaves. So I'm not sure I'm answering your question directly, but they, they regarded, the Americans regarded themselves as slaves, but they did not have, uh, they were not shackled and they did not have the onerous um, galley slave regime that earlier generations of Barbary captives had. Now, they did have and they were subjected to the same kind of punishments that earlier generations had. There was a punishment called the bastinado, uh, where um, their overseers, or ward- they sometimes called them wardens, would beat them with what might look like a cricket bat. It was uh, sort of a short piece of wood with a flat surface. And uh, typically, they would beat the people on the soles of their feet, uh, which was apparently an extremely uh, painful punishment. Um, so I don't want to soft pedal their treatment, which was very poor, but it may not have been as difficult as earlier generations of Barbary captives.
0: So obviously, this changes a lot about the war, but it also changes a lot about how the United States has to deal with other nations. So who comes to the aid of these captives? Who is trying to get them out?
1: Well, that's interesting. Uh, I mentioned briefly before the Danish consul uh, in Tripoli, a man named Nikolai Nissen, who was really the savior of the Americans in terms of supplying them food, acting as their postman, and sort of trying to work for their uh, softer existence for them. But um, the American diplomats in Europe reached out to their opposite numbers, and uh, without going into too much detail, the uh, American minister in Paris, Robert Livingston, reached out to the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, who spoke to Napoleon, and the result of all this was that the French specifically uh, launched an effort to try to free the Americans through their consul in Tripoli, a man named Bonaventure Bossier. And uh, that uh, is detailed pretty extensively in my book. Uh, Beaussier was really distrusted by both Preble and Bainbridge, but I think he did try uh, in good faith and was unsuccessful in freeing the Americans. We should all honor Preble as a great naval commander and a great naval leader. Uh, I think uh, I show in the book that he was not prone to diplomacy. Um, I agree. (laughs) He was was very impatient, and he was very distrustful. And um, it's often said, and in in a lot of the secondary literature that I'm sure you're familiar with, Abby, that uh, Bainbridge, you know, would fix on a sum, you know, in different accounts, it's $40,000 or $60,000 to ransom the Americans, but actually a very close look at the documents shows that one of the reasons why Bainbridge, excuse me, one of Preble's efforts, his own efforts to, to negotiate the freedom of these Americans failed, was that almost every, uh, after every battle, he tried to parlay with the Bashaw's people, and he kept on raising the amount he was willing to pay. And all of the professional diplomats, thought this was a grave mistake. And so um, his ultimate number, interestingly enough, was twice what Tobias Lear was uh, able to ransom the Americans for. You mentioned the officers have a life, relatively speaking. Initially, for the first four months, yes. Are you asking me the sort of the social composition, if you will, of the crew? Yeah. yeah. So tell me who actually is in this group of captives. All right. So there there were 264 enlisted people, including the Marines, uh, who were treated as slave laborers. Um, one of the things that my research uncovered, which I think will be new to most historians of the early Navy and the early Republic. Is that the vast majority of the crew were not actually Americans? I mean, that's you got to sort of think about that a couple of times, um, and they all knew it. I mean, Bainbridge said two thirds of the crew were uh, from the British Isles, meaning mostly Irish and English, um, and there were a scattering of French and Scandinavian and other people on board now of course the officers were all Americans but um, the the crew one one of the, the this, this I find this very interesting the the crew is very cosmopolitan and and there was a lot of movement in between the British Navy and the uh, US Navy and the British Navy and uh, the US Merchant Marine if you will uh, civilian uh, cargo uh, ships and and uh, there was also a fluidity to allegiance. Uh, so one of the things that, uh, uh, again, this is a slightly different point than you asked, but uh, if I can riff with this for a second, um, Bainbridge was a harsh disciplinarian, and uh, his crew basically despised him. And over the course of the cruise from the United States into the Mediterranean uh, before the ship went aground. A large number of the American, so called American crew members, deserted to the British Navy. Now, we always think that the British seamen deserted to the American Navy, but here uh, it was the opposite. And so, I mean, I, I haven't added them up, but something like 15 men, uh, maybe it was 18 men, something like that, deserted. And a large part of it is because they didn't like Bainbridge and they didn't like his ferocious discipline. And the new first lieutenant on the ship was Lieutenant David Porter. And they didn't care for him either. And uh, so, so uh, you have a combination of, of English and Irish people dominating in the crew. Most of them never made an effort to be naturalized Americans. Um, and uh, when they decided that uh, things were too onerous on the Philadelphia, uh, some of them left. Now, a lot of them really did identify as being American. That's another interesting thing. And they looked with disdain on some of these uh, people who professed to be British, you know, and and revert to their British uh, uh, nationality. Um, There were also uh, some African-Americans in the crew, and we don't really know how many. Uh, We know that in Philadelphia at the time, about one-sixth of the sailors, seamen, were African-American. Um, I am pretty sure I've identified one African-American specifically in the crew. Uh, but interestingly enough, the this was obviously pre-Jim Crow, and the Navy did not identify by race uh, its sailors. So you have to find through indirection uh what race people were but clearly there would have been uh at least a sprinkling of black seamen on board the philadelphia
0: so i want to go back to the british thing just for a moment did any of these sailors who felt like they had some sort of other citizenship claim try to use that citizenship claim to get out of captivity
1: yes the answer to that is yes um So, uh, there was a lot of that. So, uh, uh, there was, and it's not clear if this story is completely true or in part apocryphal, but there was an effort made by some of the English and Irish men who had deserted from the British Navy to... Uh, appealed to uh, Admiral Lord Nelson, who commanded the Mediterranean fleet uh, uh, for Britain at the time. Uh, And uh, Nelson reputedly said that he would hang the rascals. Um, There were also uh, belatedly uh, efforts by the French consul Bossier to uh, free four people in the crew who were French Uh, And the Bashar refused to allow that to happen. Although, interestingly enough, at the very end of their captivity, when these men could have been freed, two of them sought protection under French colors and Bossier grabbed them and uh, they never returned to the United States. So it's a strange story in that, yes, there was fluidity. Yes, there were efforts uh, made by some people to sort of get out of jail free, if you will. Uh, But um, they didn't work at the time. And yet after everything should have been over, two of the men claimed to be French, and they probably were, and, uh, and stayed behind.
0: Yeah, I think it's so interesting that how obvious the fluidity is in this story, because so many of them know that this is their only chance of getting out of captivity in the indeterminate future is to be able to claim some other citizenship. But of course, it doesn't work for most of them, except for those two guys.
1: Right. And 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 I think what's also remarkable is flipping the whole thing over in that uh, many of them did not opt to tr- even try to be free. They wanted to be, even if they weren't Americans, they wanted to be Americans. And so they refused to try to get out of Barbary captivity. Now, that's an interesting segue to the situation of the officers because the officers were obviously, uh, many of them were from well-to-do families. And there was uh, a possibility of privately ransoming themselves. And the example uh, I use in the book is James Biddle, who came from the very famous Biddle family of Philadelphia, a very well-to-do family, very well-placed, what we today would call networked. Um, And uh, Biddle's family put money at his disposal, both through British diplomats and American diplomats in the Mediterranean. And we know for a fact that James Biddle could have freed himself using that money, and he refused to do it. And other American officers refused to do it because uh, either on the first or the second day of captivity. They made an agreement that none of them would leave until all of them could leave, which may sound like the obvious thing to do, but I think it was a very courageous thing to do. Uh, And um, I I think they deserve a lot of credit because, of course, they had no idea if they'd ever be freed. Uh, They had no idea how they would be freed, Um, and it's also true, and they knew this, that uh, periodically, terrible diseases would run through the populations in the Barbary powers, for instance, the plague. Uh, and And so, you know, even if uh, the government of the United States would try to save them by military force or diplomacy or otherwise, they could have you know died of just these terrible diseases. But none of them, as they say, none of them sought to uh, get out early. And they all decided to stay until they all could be freed.
0: This officer corps seems like a very tight knit group in some ways, because they also all signed this declaration that Bainbridge did nothing wrong. Right. Yes. Which is surprising in some ways, because you could easily see this as an opportunity for one of the more ambitious younger officers to essentially kick Bainbridge while he's down and then move ahead of him. So why why are they so closely knit, do you think?
1: Well, that's a great question. Um, I think that the uh, idea of honor was uh, just a huge factor in the early Navy. And, you know, during the grounding of the Philadelphia, Bainbridge called not one but two councils of his officers to get their opinions on what he should do. And I I think that although my guess is today, naval officers would not use that vehicle. I think that would be frowned upon. I think that by bringing his entire group of officers together and, say, and, and sort of say, look, what should we do? Um, he got them into the process. And for them to then the next day to, sit, to have you know, turned on him would have been very bad form. Um, and I also think you know uh, Bainbridge, as unpopular as he was with the enlisted people, was quite popular with the other officers. He was uh, uh, very av- av- avuncular and uh, friendly. And and uh, there's a story that in 1800, when he was in command of the ship George Washington, and there was a separate debacle with the George Washington, which we can get into. But in in 1800. Uh, he told the midshipmen, uh, when they were still moored in Philadelphia, uh, he told the midshipmen that they should feel free to come to his house in Philadelphia. He gave them his address and he said, essentially as if he were the, their parents, um, he said, you know, my wife and I will give you refreshments and you should feel free to use our house as your house. So, you know, he was... A gentleman of the old school, not that he was an older man because he was a young man at the time, but he uh, treated the officers with a totally different uh, outlook than he did the men. He thought the men were misfits and creeps and um, he thought the officers by definition were gentlemen and he treated them that way. So I think that was reciprocated is the long my long-winded
0: answer to your question. So I want to move now to how their circumstances change, which we've alluded to a couple of times. What happens that moves the officers from this nice dwelling into the dungeon?
1: Well, that is easily uh, answered. So on February 16th, 1804, in one of the most famous episodes in American naval history, Stephen Decatur led a group of uh, volunteers on board the Ketch Intrepid into Tripoli Harbor, uh, and with these men, he burned the captured uh, frigate Philadelphia and then was able to escape without uh, a man being lost. Uh, It's a tremendously interesting episode. Uh, During that episode, uh, my research has uncovered that it is likely, although not certain, that several of the Tripolitan sailors who had given themselves up were killed. Uh, I don't want to use the word murdered, but killed by the uh, Americans who had just captured them. And this is spelled out in the book in a couple of places, and we can get into it if you'd like. The important point is that uh, not only did the Bashaw regard himself as humiliated by the loss of this captured ship, but he encountered at least three of these uh, Tripolitan sailors who had been stabbed repeatedly. Uh, their bodies had washed up on the beach, and the Bashar himself was aware of this, as was his foreign minister, a man named Mohammed Zegis. And um, I think both because of his embarrassment and because uh, of a sense of punishment, he wanted the uh, officers moved into this dungeon, which he had built under or, or arranged under his castle. And it also could be that the ability of Decatur and his band of volunteers to enter the harbor as they did suggested to him that there could be some sort of expedition to try to free people. That would have been very risky. Uh, But in any case, if they were in a dungeon underneath the Bashaw's castle, they were in a very secure location and uh, there was no risk that they. he thought that they uh, could get out. Which
0: was true, right? I mean, none of them did get out. Well, it
1: was true, but ironically, uh, the officers had felt that the Bashaw had broken his word about parole. Parole was a system where uh, the officers uh, it would be mutual promises. The officers would uh, had promised that they wouldn't try to escape in lieu of they were granted certain privileges uh, to walk around the city, et cetera. Uh, and the, the Bashaw reneged on that almost immediately. And as a result, when the Bashaw had the 43 officers and their stewards moved into this dungeon underneath the Bashaw's castle, the officers made repeated efforts to try to escape. Now, those were almost clearly destined to fail for all sorts of reasons. But I think the point is that they tried. and And the reason why they could do that the only reason why they thought they could do that is that the Peshaw's castle is right up on the water uh, of the uh, Tripoli port. So if they could dig a tunnel out, you know, they would be on the waterfront. But it's, it's hard to imagine how they could have timed uh, Preble sending in some boats to, to get them off. But I, I detail this all in the book. Uh, I think the, 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 the important point is that uh, as captive American naval officers, they made every effort to try to escape.
0: So you just mentioned that if everything worked out perfectly, Preble sent in boats. How could Preble have known when to send in the boats? What was the communication between him and the captives?
1: Well, the communications were by letter, of course. Um, there were no cell phones in those days. Um and the communications were intermittent and not very reliable, but uh, what Bainbridge had done was, uh, from the earliest days of captivity, is he would write letters to naval officer, naval officers, particularly to Preble, um, with what was called sympathetic ink, which was essentially uh, lemon juice and maybe a weak solution of carbonic acid. If I don't know how that was done. But anyway, with lemon juice, uh, interlineating th- sort of secret passages and otherwise, you know, anandine kind of letter we, where, you know, he could be talking about the weather or uh, talking about, you know, family news or whatever he wanted to talk about. Uh, and then f- with with what we would call intel, intelligence or, 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 or secret information, he would write this in the lime juice. And uh, Preble knew that these were coming and the way that he could read them was to warm the letter over a, a fire and the idea was that if he if Bainbridge could coordinate with Preble at least in theory it was possible that boats could be sent in at the same time that a tunnel would have been completed but that was very very chancy and there, uh, in part because the, the uh, position of the dungeon was, I, I understand this, was bu- sort of below the water table. And so every time they were digging sand, the sand sort of collapsed and water came in. And they didn't have pumps, of course. And so just digging the tunnels were very hard. And then they came up with other ways to try to escape. But to try to coordinate this with Preble was just Im- impossibly difficult.
0: It always surprises me how often Bainbridge is actually able to write to Preble about anything. So how are his letters getting to Preble?
1: Well, first of all, uh, there's a reason why he was allowed to write, and that is because the Bashaw uh, oftentimes uh, had his people read the letters or try to read the letters. And um, uh, because the Bashaw wanted to know what was going on. Uh, But. The, the real answer, I think, to where your question is, is that uh, Nikolai Nissen acted as sort of, sort of the postman, and he would collect letters from the officers, particularly from Bainbridge, and if a merchant ship from a neutral country was leaving the harbor, he'd give it, consign those letters to the captain, and the captain would deliver them to Preble, and that that's how that worked. Um there are all sorts of nuances that are interesting about that. Um, for a while, the Bashar refused to allow them to have any male privileges. That's one thing as, as a punishment. And then, of course, the Americans um, also were fearful about the interception of their letters. And so Bainbridge devised a very interesting system where the letter would be wrapped around a leather book, what today we might call a dust jacket. Uh, Presumably, uh, the written part would be on the inside, so no one would know that. And uh, uh, when books would come in and out of this dungeon prison to Nissen, Nissen would then know that there was a letter if there was this piece of paper encasing the leather book, if you will. And... um, That system seemed to have worked, and there's no indication that any of these communications were intercepted.
0: So what other kind of intelligence is Bainbridge giving to Preble besides just about the escape? Like, is he able to provide him with any information about what's going on in Tripoli?
1: Yes. Uh, So he's able to give some information about the defenses around the harbor. He urges him in at least two or three uh, letters to burn the Philadelphia now, Preble doesn't need encouragement about that. Preble knows he needs to burn the Philadelphia. As a matter of fact, his, almost his first reaction when he learns that the Philadelphia uh, has been lost to the enemy is he's got to destroy her uh, at at almost any cost. But Bainbridge, you know, comes up with all sorts of schemes on, on how that could be done. Bainbridge, you know, Preble did not follow those schemes. But, you know, it, still, it answers your question. This is the kind of stuff he was writing. Uh, Preble about, in other words, you know the defenses, how many cannon cannon are mounted? If if in fact he knew uh, what, how many gunboats the Beshaw might have? Um, methods of of um, of, of attacking Tripoli to burn the Philadelphia, uh, and sort of general information about their status as prisoners, and and uh, so there, there's quite a lot of um, of Bainbridge letters to Preble. A slightly fewer letters from Preble back to Brainbridge, but still a number of them.
0: So I want to jump to the end here and talk about how do they get out? What happens to get them out of captivity?
1: So um, at the beginning of our conversation, Abby, I referred to the sort of intermittent blockades that the uh, first couple of squadrons had done. Preble instituted a much better blockade. He was a much better officer and and knew his business uh, better than—Dale uh, was not bad, but he had insufficient means, and Morris was a complete failure. Um, and so the blockade was better. And uh, he had more ships, and he it was much tighter. So the blockade was able to uh, interfere somewhat, not completely, somewhat with both Munitions getting into Tripoli and food getting into Tripoli. And and so, and of course, there were attacks in uh, uh, August and September of 1804. Preble launched a series of attacks, which many of the uh, conventional operational histories about the uh, Tripolitan War talk about in great detail. I refer to them, but uh, that's not the emphasis in, in my book. Uh, And those attacks, interestingly enough, they added great glory to the United States Navy. And I'm not going to try to criticize those attacks because it was what Preble could do with the weapons and the ships that he had. However, a close look at the sources will indicate that they did not do a lot of damage to Tripoli. So the, the, the standoff weapon that Preble had received were... Uh, mortar boats, which were then called bomb vessels, and uh, the, the mortar boats were used essentially five times to bombard Tripoli, and they did a, unfortunately a surprisingly uh, lack of damage to uh, to Tripoli. Um, and but there were certain gunboat attacks that impressed the bashaw by how brave the American sailors were. So. It's a mixed bag. The, the, one of the factors that caused the Bashaw to want to make uh, a, a better peace, a cheaper peace, if you will, was the fact that this um, Quixotic uh, uh, assault from the Nile a thousand miles across the desert under the former diplomat William Eaton, who became a generalissimo of a group of U.S. Marines uh, Christian mercenaries and Arab horsemen, uh, they did this enormous trek through the desert, you know, which is now famous, you know, in the Marine Corps anthem to the shores of Tripoli, Um, and they beat a far larger force at at Derna, which is I guess the major city between the Nile and Tripoli. It's still 500 miles from Tripoli, but um, with Eaton came the Bashar's older brother, who could have been seen and was seen by some as the rightful ruler of Tripoli. So th- so the combination of the American squadron offshore and Eaton uh, approaching from the east seemed to make the risks of war too great for the Bashaw almost existential if, if Eaton had been able to move on and approach Tripoli. Now, I think there's a lot of reason to think that Eaton was a spent force, but that's not what the Bashaw thought. In any case, so um, Preble had been superseded in command by a man named Samuel Barron, and there's an absolutely great letter that, that uh, I point to in the book I'm going to make more of it here than I do in the book. But Barron at some point turns to the senior U.S. diplomat, a man named Tobias Lear, and says to him that Captain Bainbridge and his officers are too important to languish in prison in Tripoli. He doesn't say a word about the 260 American sailors and men, uh, uh, Marines, uh, who, who are struggling in captivity. But in any case, so Lear, who had been very reluctant to engage in personal negotiations, goes on one of the warships to Tripoli and essentially gives an ultimatum as to what the United States is willing to offer in terms of ransom, which after some extended negotiations, the Bashaw accepts. So it it is not true that uh, the Philadelphias and, and everything that happened uh, as a result of captivity is a prime example of this so-called American principle that this country does not pay ransom for hostages. That is just completely wrong historically, although it has often been invoked as the, like, the lead example. We did pay ransom, not a lot of ransom, $60,000 approximately, which comes to almost exactly $200 per man, which... Incidentally, was not insignificant in those days. That was real money. Um, in fact, it was probably more than the cost of one of the small warships in Bainbridge's in in Preble's squadron. But anyway, um, w- the combination of the military force and the money is what freed the Americans, and most of them, but not all of them, were able to come home. Um, of the two hundred and sixty-four enlisted uh, people, which are the sailors and the the marines. Um, uh, Two of them uh, were claimed as French and didn't come home. Five of them, to use the pejorative term at the time, turned Turk. And because they had become Muslim, and I'm not an expert on the Islamic faith, but I understand one of the teachings of the Quran is that one Muslim cannot enslave another. So five of the men who had become Muslim uh, didn't come home, and then seven men died either in captivity or immediately afterwards, within the next few days. Um, so a total of 250 of the men and all of the officers were able to come home, and that was the end of this episode in American history.
0: That's a, I mean, that's a pretty good return rate. In terms of captivity, that's a very high number of people that actually got to come home.
1: Abby, that's not, a, I mean, that's a great point. And some of that was luck, because uh, I referred to before about the diseases that would rage through um, uh, many of the Barbary powers. In fact, your research, uh, I relied on in, in making that point. Um, but so, so that was fortuitous that that did not happen, that there were no diseases uh, that, that raged through the crew. Uh, but it also, I think, is an interesting point—one uh, that we today should think carefully about. It was precisely because the bashaw regarded these prisoners as an opportunity to make money. Each one was worth money. That, in the in the end run, he didn't want them to die. He wanted to at least give them the bare minimum to survive. And the United States' willingness to pay money certainly saved lives, ultimately, either because another naval campaign and or Eaton's expedition would have cost a lot of lives, or if driven to the last extreme, who knows? Maybe the Bashar would have killed these prisoners because uh, he had threatened to do so many times before. So it, while it's easy to, to say we're, we are principled and we don't pay money for ransom— there, certainly, this episode suggests there are times and places where ransoming prisoners should not be taken off the table.
0: So what is the lesson here? Why do these people matter? Why does this episode matter?
1: Well, I think it matters for a number of reasons. One, we just talked about the far, what might be considered the foreign policy moral or lesson of the story. And I think that's interesting and important. I also think that the saga of the Americans in captivity maybe is the first instance of a number of Americans held hostage overseas, and how our prisoners, in this case slaves, would react to that. And it sets an example, I think, one of the, the interesting aspects to their slavery is that they never lost their humanity. They always had sort of passive resistance to the uh, overseers and the wardens. And I talk about this at some length in the book. Uh, I love the story of a gunner's mate named Charles Griffith, who, uh, seeing some of the crew become Muslim, uh, got word to the bashaw that as gunner's mate, he could build a furnace to heat shot, so-called red hot shot, which be used by shore batteries against, you know, wooden ships with their canvas sails. And so the Bashaw commissioned him to build this furnace and at great expense. And he took his time and he built the furnace. And then the demonstration day came and they heated up the furnace and the furnace, not only could it not heat the cannonballs, but the furnace itself fell apart. And uh, everyone sort of understood that this was Griffith's idea from the beginning, um, and I love that story. And, and uh, I also talk about a strike that the prisoners had uh, and uh, all sorts of efforts to sort of cause trouble. Uh, and I don't want to make this sound like uh, you know, a World War II prisoner movie, but there are aspects of that. Th- there are aspects of the men trying to turn really a, a, a terrible situation to uh, their advantage. I mean, one of the early nights of their captivity, when there was not a place for them all to sleep and some of them had to stay up all night, how did they respond? They responded by cracking jokes and singing songs and creating mayhem, which is sort of a, a great sort of American way of reacting to foreign captivity. So I don't know if I'm really answering your questions, but I think that besides the foreign policy aspects, I think This is really a a sort of a bellwether time that defines how Americans react. The officers with honor saying, we're not going to leave until everybody leaves. And the men basically, uh, you know, doing what they had to do to survive. But with the exception of the five who became Muslim and sort of went over to the enemy. Uh, The other ones just sort of, you know, made fun of their guards and made as light of their situation as they could. And I I think that's a lesson for us.
0: Treble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.